Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. I guess, and this is with the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? It's all a question of happenstance, chance, and luck. But you make it yourself. You make that luck because you've got a series of decisions to make. Uh, You know, I'm 60-something now, 63. And really, make your luck? No, I, I worked for an advertising agency. It went bust. I could get into a truck. I could go to Romania. I chose to go and work in an orphanage, and it changed my life. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Career Guide podcast. And today we are joined by James Shepard Barron, who is an independent disaster risk management consultant and practitioner with more than 30 years experience in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Pacific, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the Caribbean. A former UN official who has held senior corporate and contract roles, most notably as CARE International's Global Emergencies Director and as a special advisor to the governments of Albania, Pakistan, Sierra Leone, DRC, and the UK. He is also an adjunct professor at Fordham University's Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs. James, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about your stories and your experiences with your international career. Well, my pleasure, Kyle. Thanks for having me on. Sounds good when you read it out, doesn't it? 30 years that took to amass all that experience. And it all started, I mean, you're in Odessa, I think. Um, It all started in 1990 when the Berlin Wall came down. And that's when the whole humanitarian world exploded. Uh, And I think it's now about six times bigger now than it was in those days. And I found myself driving a truck to an orphanage in Romania because nobody had ever driven across Europe to an orphanage in Romania because we couldn't get in to places like Romania because of the Cold War. So I found myself driving a truck of pediatric supplies to an orphanage, which was a, you know, a, a specific targeted startup NGO kind of thing to do. And I was the logistician and it changed my life. You can't work in a Romanian orphanage for more than a few minutes without being seriously touched by man's capacity to be inhuman. And I started doing what you do, raising money, trying to expand the scope of what we're doing. There's a whole team of us. I was just a truck driver, don't forget. And at one point, one of my now friends, and I'd never met him before, um, he knew the British ambassador, um, ambassador's daughter in Budapest. And on the driving back after one of our trips, we went to 
stay to meet up with her. And we met him. And he turned to us both and said, well, you guys started up and helped start up this NGO. You, you know, you're obviously good guys. You, know, you were in advertising and you were in, which was me, and you were in um, you know, commodity trading. You're still doing this thing at this point in your lives. You're 30-something. You know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I think I, you know, this has changed my life forever. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to take it forward. And he said, well, we've got a thing going on in Zagreb for the European Community Monitor Mission. And they need to start up a humanitarian office. Would you consider going out with the British Foreign Office and starting that up? And I did. And everything went from there. And I went to work for the European Commission and then the UN and Care International. And, and I've been doing it ever since. And my friend, just as a, as a corollary, I mean, he went into UN OCHA, the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian mm -hmm. Affairs. And yeah, here we are, 30 years later, he's still with the UN. And I'm still gig working as um, a disaster risk management consultant advising governments on how to manage the, the whole phasing of reducing risk and building resilience and responding and getting yourself ready and then recovering from a disaster. And that's what I do today. Well, I mean, in, in 30 years went by fast, I imagine. Um, one of the things that I always sort of ask people when we have these interviews is, you know, you sort of gave us the origin of how you started working, but was that really sort of your intent when you started, when you were going through university or, you know, starting out early in your career as a young professional? Did you, you mentioned like commodities trading and things like that. I mean, where did you sort of make that connection that you wanted to do this type of humanitarian work? What prompted you to do that? And how did you get started on that? I guess, and this is with the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? It's all a question of happenstance, chance, and luck. But you make it yourself. You make that luck because you've got a series of decisions to make. Uh, it, you know, I'm 60-something now, 63. And really, make your luck? No. I, I worked for an advertising agency. It went bust. I could get into a truck. I could go to Romania. I chose to go and work in an orphanage, and it changed my life because I met the father of a girl in Budapest. And so I went to Zagreb and started up the humanitarian aid office, which became what is now ECHO in the European Commission, the European Commissioner's Office for, for I think it's called Civil Defence and Humanitarian Affairs now. You know, I was right there at the beginning because that was the beginning for so many people. So no, I didn't have... I didn't have this in my mind when I was going to university. Um, in fact, the army sent me to university. They paid for me to go to university. I did six years as an army officer before I went into advertising. And most of that was flying. So I was, you know, being taught, I was a helicopter pilot, at least was trained as a helicopter pilot, and then went deaf, so I couldn't fly anymore. So what do you do? Well, you just take the opportunities that come and either say yes or say no. Mm. Years later, the European Commission, I'd been in Rwanda and Burundi for a couple of years, and they said, well, do you want to stay in Africa? Or, yeah, it seems to be getting ugly in Albania. Do you want to go to Albania and run our office there? In fact, set it up. Well, mm. you've got about 30 seconds. I said, can I think about it? He said, well, a thousand people want the job. So do you want it or don't you? Okay. So I went to Albania. Yeah. <laughs> and before you know it, you're an advising a government on 
what is about to become a full-on disaster, now known as the Kosovo crisis. And that didn't start in Albania the day that all the shit went down in Kosovo. It started a year before, because I was already there helping them deal with uh, a, a pyramid scheme problem. And they were already preparing for a full-blown crisis on their border, which, of course, spilled over. Mm. Everything from, from hey, you, you, you do realise, Minister, that your airport is going to be completely taken over by the UN. You know, and, and, and you're going to need to coordinate. And it doesn't mean one phone. It means, you know, 48 telephones in banks of three and electricity connectivity. I mean, it's, this whole international disaster thing I, I knew enough to advise them on that because of my time in, in, in former Yugoslavia. Mm. So I was working in Bosnia for three years before I went to Burundi and Rwanda. And years later, I, somebody sends me to Sierra Leone, well, the British government sent me to Sierra Leone to advise them on exactly the same thing for cholera and, and Ebola um, to set up the systems. Because what's the advice? The advice to these governments is and this may be a problem of, of me being a hammer because, and every problem is therefore a nail, but <laughs> the advice is this is not a health outbreak. This is a disaster. It's exactly the same with COVID now. This is not a disease outbreak. This is not a health emergency. This is a full-on, full-scale, multidisciplinary, multi-sectoral disaster, and it's got to be treated like that from day one. And most countries, and dare I say it, including my own, the British, took far too long to appreciate that, despite the fact we've been telling the world this is what you need to do. And it's enshrined now in something called the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. So mm -hmm. things are moving, but that fundamental appreciation was not in my head when I went to university, was not in my head when I went to work in an orphanage in Romania, didn't know anything about it. So learnt it on the way, apply it, and now I and now I teach it. I teach you know, teach it formally at Fordham University in, in New York. Hmm. Disaster risk management. Have you always been in that position though, where you just sort of take the risks? Where you right. just agree so quickly to to go to different countries. I mean, my my sort of story uh, is not so dissimilar to yours, where I was working in the emergency services and I got a phone call from a friend who was working overseas and was like, Hey, we need people, do you want to do it? And, you know, to start up this sort of uh, capacity building piece in Bosnia back during the conflict and, and reestablish emergency services. And I would I like to say I was just sort of young and dumb enough to say, yeah, why not? And, and I took it and then I haven't looked back. I mean, but was that something that you were just naturally inclined to do? What would you say for people well, who are maybe more that, risk adverse? Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly recognize that the, the, the thing. I mean, I used to get quite upset in, in the early days when people said you're just a disaster junkie because it kind of implies that you're chasing, you're running away from something, you're, 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 you're trying to do something which is not really properly understood. And that's very true. But you take, you either create the opportunity or somebody rings you up and gives you the opportunity. And you, you, you either say yes or you say no. And you might, if you're lucky, get, a few minutes or a few hours or maybe a day to think about it, but you're lucky if you get that. And on such decisions does your life unfold, right? I didn't plan it all out in advance, but I am far from a disaster junkie. And in fact, I would say that the international aid community are probably, and I've worked in the corporate sector and I've worked in the military, 
I've, I've worked for government departments. I would say that across the board, and as the, as the Emergencies Director for Care International too, I think our sector is pretty good at assessing and managing risk. It's not to say we're risk averse, but we certainly don't jump into firefights for the adrenaline. Far from it. And so that characterization is false, and, but you have to deal with it because the outside world is not quite convinced. I mean, people, countries treat it differently. And when you get home, wherever home is, how do you define home? I mean, where you're born, where your family is, I, I don't know. But whenever you get home, one of the things you really have to deal with yourself is that people are not interested in what you do. They are threatened by it. They're uncomfortable talking about it because it seems that you do good, which by implication means they must be doing something bad. They don't want to talk about it. It's outside their frame of reference. And everybody has that problem. And you just have to live with that. Now, that, that's peculiar to international disaster management kind of work. But it means that if you want to stay doing the international job for long, you've got to work extra hard at keeping those home contacts which is easier with social media now because you can have a WhatsApp group and send pictures of what you're doing. And I have nephews, nieces, children of friends, friends going around the world and they, they, they post tweets of what they're doing in Goma or, or, or the Yemen or, or with the Rohingya. You know, and it's fantastic. And people are really aware. It, when I started out, that wasn't possible. So, you know, you can disappear and out of sight, out of mind. And so work hard at keeping the, the, the home network live. Yeah, you've actually mentioned two things, which, uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, one of them has come up quite a few times in the interviews that we've done so far and, and since starting this podcast, which is managing your life around an international career, right? What does that mean contextually sort of, sort of for your life decisions? And, and as you mature, as you get older, as your career changes, as you evolve as a human being, you know, and, and still working internationally and going to various different countries and having to sort of think about in two different strands, like your work that you're doing internationally, but also, as you mentioned, your home life. When you get home, how do you get home? How often do you get home? And planning and thinking about these types of things, which I think, you know, people who have, let's say, quote unquote, a normal career don't are not necessarily concerned about because they work in the city and they go to work in the city and they, you know, have a commute and go home. And the second thing you mentioned, which I thought was pretty insightful, which is also very true, is how much that not not the reaction necessarily from when we get home and, and talking from others, but I think also in how much we change, how much that that international exposure and being in those different countries and working amongst the different cultures has a, as you mentioned, like sort of a profound effect on us. And when we go back home, wherever that is, and then seeing the same group of people and seeing them after a year or two years or whatever the case is, uh, and and realizing that sometimes we we tend to have a, a difference after a while, right? And it, it yeah, can be, sure. you yeah. can be separated from your own culture where you came from over time. I mean, it's even speaking for myself, when I go back to the United States, sometimes I think I'm in a foreign country, you know, just because it's been a while. Well, which which world is real? And to you, if you're traveling abroad, um, and one of the things I'm I think all humanitarian aid workers are involved with now in one shape or another will be cash. I mean, if you're not doing human rights, you're probably doing cash transfer programming, that kind of thing. You are having to leap into 
things that you don't know about. How many bankers work in aid agencies? Well, you better go learn about it. Actually, I was an intern in a bank, so somehow I ticked some box. But that was a long time ago when I was trying to get a job you know, and leaving university, but um, or leaving the army, rather. But taking that experience with you, with your suitcase, I still have a suitcase of clothes in Sarajevo, I think, left behind in some dash for the airport during the Sarajevo airlift, you know, 1995. I should go back and try and find it. But you learn as you go, you apply as you go, you do what everybody else is doing in corporate life around you, which is promoting yourself to the point of incompetence. And you realize when you're out of your depth. And I realized I spent 10 years of my, the first 10 years of my aid work life working for donors, which is the best and the worst job ever because you're telling people what to do, basically. I mean, it's all couched in language like partnership, but you're the one with the money, or at least you're the agent that, that determines whether money should be should be invested or not. And that's a really dangerous spot to be in if you've never done the job yourself. So I didn't go and work for Care International until later. And I wish I'd done it earlier. I wish I'd started out. But I went in straight as a global emergencies director. No, no. I'm talking about going in as a logistician on the ground going whether it's a health ngo or anything else go in with your technical qualification and that was the next thing i got to the end of three years in albania throughout the kosovo crisis and i said you know i seem to be doing public health more than anything else i'm not a lawyer i see the human rights obligations of what i'm doing but actually i'm making decisions based on health outcomes i'm not a doctor what am i going to do and so I went to get a master's in public health because I thought that was more useful than getting a, a, a master's in business administration, for example. Actually, I think you probably need both. But there is no master, there's no MBA for aid workers. There should be. Uh, and, that, and I'm engaged in, in, in that now in trying to develop a course around disaster risk management because managing before, during, and after a disaster event is about management. It's not just coordination. It's much, much more than that. And you need to be trained in it. You need to know it. You need to be taught it. But there's nobody teaching it. You could do coordination trainings through these things called clusters, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the next level up. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but but in that, it was you know the field experience must come first, and then you've got to get the technical qualification. Otherwise, you'll never have that, that kudos, that credibility when you go back home and try to explain to people what you're doing. Hmm. And in terms of, you know, you, you mentioned previously how, you know, you need to sort of create these opportunities. You, you're either going, you know, you're sort of working on continually promoting yourself and building out these opportunities and either applying for them or creating them. Have you found, because you also mentioned some more generic skill sets, right? So we're talking about like, if you have an MBA, if you have business skill sets, you have project management skill sets, things like that. How much have you found that, you know, these universal skill sets apply across all the positions you've been in and, and in terms of the different careers? Is there sort of a set of skills that you think are required for international careers such as yours? Uh, that's a very big question. Um, the short answer is yes. One of the problems you have uh, or challenge you have to face if you're ex-military is explaining to people because they, the moment you use the word military, they've put you in a box. It's just like saying you're a banker. You know, 
you, a you're rich b you're bad you know etc if you're military you have to explain to the aid world who actually spend quite a lot of their time working with civil defense and and military actors and and even paramilitary actors and you have to understand the military you don't have to be a soldier to do that but you have to wise up to who a soldier is you know what does rank mean to them and how do they what latitude do they have to interpret their orders because they do so taking a you know the the the, the discipline that comes with being a soldier you know that yeah you absorb that you know you try to start meetings on time you know because it's difficult to be late to everything and then you work in the middle east for years and you realize that nothing starts on time and really you know just do the best you can but don't get too upset and appreciate that the first 10 minutes of any meeting or more are going to be talking about the wife and kids and the family because we're really bad at that in the west but we've got one hour for the meeting start now bang 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 10 minutes for item number one no that's not how most of the world works so you have to learn all that and learn to leave your prejudices outside but it's a learning process so learning about public health was something i felt i should do but i, I and I guess, without trying to be too patronising about all this, I mean, it's a constant learning process. It's a constant process of reinvention and learning. I, I should have done a Six Sigma program on project management years ago. Um, my son is a, is a management consultant. You know, he tells me what he's learning, and I'm going, God, I really need to do that. <laughs> but, you know, I, can't, you, I can't do it all. But, but invest in your own training, in your skills, because everything's changing. And so it is with cash. Uh, I advise a private sector group on what's going on in the aid world. And, and you realize that the aid world is, is leading the world on how to manage cash in a society in crisis. Look at Afghanistan right now. Don't leave it to the World Bank and the IMF. It, it's, it's, it's the aid world that know how to, how to distribute cash in a disaster setting and, and know the pros and cons of biometric identification and privacy concerns, and whether you use stable coins and blockchains and all these things. That, that's not up there in the rarefied atmosphere of MasterCard and, uh, and corporate C-suites. Absolutely not. And the aid agencies don't really realize that, I think. They don't know what they, what they know and, uh, and how good they are at this kind of thing. And the private sector doesn't fully appreciate it either. So if you can do something to make, meld those two words to get the world's together that's got to be good right so again a slightly long-winded answer to your to your question but, but invest in your own skill sets and keep on investing and then apply them because the, you will absorb them you will retain them and what i learned in the military and in advertising and uh, with care international and with the world health organization yep i use it all every day Hmm, interesting. And so how did you identify those things? So because I've noticed a similar situation, right? We're, we're involved in our work, we're involved in our missions and our obligations, and we're looking at things. But I also noticed that there's a tendency that we don't necessarily look externally to what's happening, say, as you mentioned, in the private sector, trends, indicators, developments, you know, and so professionally speaking, in terms of professional development, um, how how are you sort of tracking and maintaining your own development? Because there's obviously the, the field experience, the practical experience you're working on. And then there's a view of what's happening, say, back in our own nation or back in that sort of industry. How, how are you sort of managing those two as far as, I guess, how can I phrase it? Sort of just keeping a contextual understanding so that you know when you need to invest in yourself. I think there are two parts to answering that. The first is, 
at some point you've got to work out well three parts maybe you've got to work out if you are corporate if you're a corporate person or a more out-of-the-box thinker you've got to you'll never be very happy in corporate life if, if you're constantly going to be challenging the system and that applies in civil service too and yet, if you're a consultant and you mentioned it, you have to sell and not be ashamed. You've got to sell or, or you, you just drop to the bottom of the in-tray. You know, you've got to keep pushing. But what are you selling? And then you have to have a particular set of experiences and skills that people are actually looking for, which includes languages. For example, if you're international, we forget about that. But now, especially now, you've got to know a second preferably a third language, or you're, it's, it's unlikely you're going to make the cut to get the job that I that I got when the Foreign Office in London offered me a job back in 1991. I don't think that would have happened now because I don't speak Russian or, or Bosnian or Serbo-Croat as it, as it was then. I mean, I learned a bit, but also I didn't have a master's in public health. Well, I do now. And in fact, everything I did for the, the government of Albania for three years identifying a room to put phone lines into, you know, a year before they actually needed them. They, they sweetly gave me an honorary doctorate in public health after that three years as a kind of thank you. But it was interesting because it was a doctorate in public health. They'd seen the link. It wasn't a doctorate in management or crisis management or anything. So I think that says something. That, 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 that points you to, to how you sort of amass the skills. Uh, and it... it do I have a career or do I just have a series of jobs? Because it's easy with hindsight to say I have a career. But but do I really? And I guess the answer to that is yes, probably. But I didn't realise it at the time, not always. I didn't have a roadmap always. I kind of knew what skills I needed to get. Um, I didn't do a full-on natural disaster until 2005, the earthquake in Pakistan. And then you quickly realise that most of the management skills are exactly the same. And I went on to advise the Pakistan government how to set up a, a national disaster management authority, which, you know, seven years later, they said to the UN, we don't need you anymore. Thank you very much. But, you know, most countries are pretty swift on, on the uptake when they realise what it is they've got to do. And disaster management is, after all, a growth business. So, yes, I can look back now and say that was a career. Is a career because... I now teach it to postgraduate students who come from all walks of life, private sector and, and public sector and, uh, and the non-governmental sector, uh, Red Cross and, and, and people. And I've just finished teaching one of those courses. And um, wow, they keep you on, their, on your toes. <laughs> you, 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 you quickly realize what you don't know. And you say, oh, I, you know, I must refresh myself on that. Or I just didn't know that. That's interesting. And so you work out what you've got time to go and build your competence on and you go and build it. Uh, I'm not going to run through a list of core competencies that you need to do this job. But um, uh, it is out there somewhere. I, I, I get asked these questions so often, you know, how do I get into the business? And I did create a website called the Aid Workers Union, which is a a professional support service, which answers questions like this. Mm -hmm. I think that it, what you said about sort of, is this a, just a series of jobs or is it, a, is it a career? I think that's something that people do tend to struggle with. And, and the same situation with me is that after successive years of working internationally, you start to understand that at one point you have to sort of separate yourself from your organizations and think of yourself as an international career professional, right? 
and and you amass a certain amount of experience and you start thinking, okay, now I am a, I see these multi-domain skill sets. I see that they're cross-cutting across all industries and organizations and that I could go work in this organization or that one. And it's sort of, you have a self-determining path, so to speak. But, I, you know, as you mentioned, like when we started and it was the same experience for me when I started, like you don't know any of that. That's not blatantly obvious to anybody. And I think sort of the international community is not very good at talking about that either because most of the major international organizations are very stovepiped in terms of their own organizational needs and requirements, you know? And so OSCE, for example, is like, you can only work in this one mission for seven years or 10 years total with our entire organization. We're not a retirement organization. And and so, and, and there's such a high demand for these jobs that, you know, they don't necessarily have to put a lot of effort into that. You know, they open one application, they get thousands, one vacancy, get thousands of applications. And so I, I think that there's the environment contextually is like, these are all independent jobs that you have. And I, there's an obligation upon ourselves to a certain extent to transform that into a career, to connect the dots together, to build our own career, to have our own sort of, as you mentioned, roadmap is a lot, you know, a term that I use a lot as well. Because now I think at this point in time, as you've mentioned, that the evolution of the industry itself, the evolution of international work, we're at a point in time where we could almost, maybe not exactly just yet, but we can almost design uh, a, a career path throughout these different projects and things like that. And I've, I've felt very much that same way. Um, at what point did you think or did you start feeling like you were actually a career professional and not just sort of a, uh, you know, independent worker on different projects and different donor projects? Yeah, about two about 10 years in. 10 years? When I, I'd been working for donors and I said, I can't go on working for donors forever. Uh, the European Commission wanted to send me off to somewhere else, Nepal or somewhere else. And I went, no, I, I've got to go and get myself trained. And it's going to be in public health. And they said, oh, well, good luck. Give us a call when you come back. Um, it's a year's master's degree in Copenhagen. Why Copenhagen? Because I bothered to get on a plane and go meet the only person I knew in the World Health Organization to say, what do you advise? And he said, well, come to Copenhagen because this is where our regional office for Europe is. And, and, and what you're interested in, i.e. Man the fund management side of health in, in, in emergencies, is exactly what we're working on now. So we'll pay you. We'll give you a stipend and you can do your course and come and work for us in the afternoons, which is exactly what I did. So that, how did that happen? Well, I got on a plane uh, <laughs> and I went to see somebody and I could have picked up the phone. So that is that is that making your own luck? Or is that serendipity? I mean, what was that? I'd already decided that it was going to be public health. I wasn't trying to go to the London School of Economics and, and get an MBA. I could have done. But I, I, I thought, no, for the world I'm in, it has to be health. And from that moment on, that's my focus. And my training has all been in disaster epidemiology and how to apply evidence bases and health economics to disaster management. And at the same time, the world has moved on not particularly into a gig economy, but many of us are going to have multiple career tracks in our lives, aren't we not? Uh, at the same time, the, the countries that I'm advising, they shouldn't need to take the advice twice. I mean, once they've been advised and they've got the, got the documents, you kind of guess that they're going to build it, a story with Pakistan, exactly that. They, they take, they go, yes, that's interesting. We'll do that. We won't do that. We can't do that now. 
the, you know, the political optics are too complicated right now. But And before you know it, they take your ideas, run with them, and they've built their thing. Same in Sierra Leone. Um, same in the Congo, well, to a lesser extent, more complicated there. But I don't know how many of me there are out there doing this. Not many. But once we've done it, then there are less jobs for us because we've done it. We've transferred all our skills north-south. And now my job is to, is, is, is to capacitate people by professionalizing them locally. I hate these words, but professionalize and localize, democratize, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what we should be doing. But where does that leave the next generation of me? Where are they coming from? Um, so this whole humanitarian angst we have about how do you position yourself if you're from the, the global north or west? How do you position yourself in, 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 a, in, a, in a world which is seeing the benefits and the opposite of globalization, uh, where natural hazard events, certainly those which are extreme weather events, seem to be on the increase, not the decrease? I don't think it's entirely true. I mean, the evidence is weak on some of this stuff. But nevertheless, um, you have to work. And so if, if I was doing it now, what I did 30 years ago, I'd be, I'd be think I'd be starting from a slightly different place. But in fact, I know I would be. Interesting. Yeah, that was, that's usually one of the questions that we, we sort of close out on, which is, if you were going to do it again, what would your approach be now, knowing everything that you know today? I get asked, I, and you do, you know, we're of that sort of age and stage in life where, where friends of our children, <laughs> people you've never met, um, say, you know, what you do sounds fascinating. I really, really want to do that. I've worked in, in media and I want to go do risk communications in, in, a, in, in somewhere. I go, okay, this is what you do. Each and every time you do the following. You go to the biggest disaster zone you can find on the map in a country that somebody probably hasn't heard of, your future employer. You, you fly there. You knock on the door and say, hello, I can do communications. I can do joined up writing. I'll work for you for nothing. And I know so many people have done this, and they're now you know, senior senior people in the UN and things. Um, you, you, you just create the opportunity. Get on a plane, go, work, grunt, in the front line, the trenches, you know, operations in a disaster zone. Learn the language. Um, after three years of that, hopefully you've done that with an NGO that, you're unlikely well it could be a UN agency or the Red Cross or something you you could be volunteering you could be pay, paid start as a volunteer you'll probably end up um, being paid after three years you've got field experience you've got at least one extra language and probably a smattering of something else because it's international then you go and get the qualification in whatever it is you want to do and it's probably going to be something in management stroke logistics supply chain or health, or protection and, and, and human rights, uh, legal stuff. Um, you, know, you choose your your path. Because yeah, this is only this is only my world, my world of aid. Plenty of other worlds I appreciate. And so you choose which path you want to take. Get yourself that master's degree. Go get an MBA if you really want as well. Why not? Well, it costs money. It costs time. Yep, it's an investment in your future, and nobody's going to do it except you. Because the days of companies telling all their you know, junior executives, go and get an MBA and we'll pay for it, I mean, that's rare now, um, at least from the evidence of, of 
um, young, the young that I know. It's fairly rare. So do that, you know, the language, the field experience, the, 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 the grunt work with an NGO or with a, an aid agency in the field. Only then, when you've got the technical qualification, should you dare to knock on the door for a, for a middle-ranking, mid-to-senior-level job in a bigger aid agency uh, or a bigger company or a philanthropic because there are too many people out there in those positions who, who don't have the qualifications, who don't have the experience, and they've only done one thing all their lives. I, t- I, m- I myself know that I could never work I don't know, for the World Food Programme for, for 20 or 30 years, but I've got lots of mates who do and have and love it. Great. Happy for them, but I know I couldn't do it. So somewhere, while you're, while you're doing these things, um, you're deciding... Am I going to take a whole raft of jobs and have to apply for the next one because I don't know where my next job is coming from, which is consulting and freelancing. And there is a difference between freelancing and consulting. Consulting is actually being paid to change things, whereas freelancing is being paid to just fill in for somebody who's... who's, Um, and, and, And I don't really think you can be a consultant until you've done all the things I've just described. Um, mm-hmm. because that would be slightly, yeah. I mean, I just don't see how you can do it. And there are all sorts of little sort of pathways through. I mean, lots of people go off and do evaluations, for example. I, I won't do evaluations, full stop, because I believe in my sector they're not worth the paper they're written on because mm. what really needs to be said is never written down and so nobody actually changes anything. It looks like they're, they're changing, but they're not. They're just spinning their wheels. Uh, I, I'm slightly jaundiced because I did too many for the European Commission and realised that they were ignoring everything. So go work one-on-one with the Minister of Health and then you'll get something changed, you know, in, in the DRC or, or, or with a DFID office, an FCDA office in, in an embassy somewhere. You, you actually affect meaningful change by being up close and personal. But yeah, not trying to change the world, just one step at a time, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, I, I really like that because... I think we get into a position, and I, I say this multiple times with the people that I, you know, I talk to, but I think we need to stop asking for permission to have experience. And, and so there's sort of this construct, this mental construct out there that, well, I need to apply. And it's that chicken and egg idea, right? I need to apply, but the job wants experience. I don't have experience. How can I get experience? And it's exactly what you're talking about. Well, we need to condition ourselves to create the experience. So we need to go volunteer with these nonprofits to build out experience, identify your skill set and contribute. And then through that process, learn, because you actually might not like any of it, right? Which is the reality of like, you might get there and be like, nope, this is a bad idea. And then then decide that you just don't want to do it at all. And so that feedback mechanism is necessary to help you not only hone your skills, but identify your niche, so to speak, then and your interests that you do want to work in. And so I I, I like everything you just said, and that's something that w- that I also echo with a lot of people as well. It's just simply the fact that if you're in this period of time, say post-graduation and looking for your first entry-level job and you need to gain experience, then you need to start creating experience and sort of take on that responsibility instead of just wondering why you can't get any experience. Because I think experience comes in many, many different forms. It doesn't have to just be on an employment contract. You know, for some reason we got... Well, I don't... Yeah, I don't. The trouble is, Kyle, I don't know who's listening to, to this. I can only speak about the aid world, the aid sector. Sure. You, know, you could go sure. work for Procter & Gamble. I don't know how much you know, resonates with them. 
even today, even this week, I was having a conversation with, with, with another East Coast university in the States, trying to get them to come into to, to my um, mini master's idea. And they said, yeah, but, you know, but you've worked for everybody. You know, you were only five years with the World Health Organization. And I said, yes, that's my strength. If I'd spent 25 years with the World Health Organization, then my life really would be hammers and nails. And I wouldn't be able to, medical doctor or not, or not, I wouldn't be able to see outside the health or medicine box. And I find that deeply unhelpful. I want that range of experience. And I, to this day, I have to explain to clients who may be about to hire me or people they've sent me to see, this breadth of experience is not a weakness. It's a strength. The fact that I've worked for the UN, worked for international NGOs, worked for the Red Cross, worked for five different UN agencies in 70 countries is, is not that I'm a flake. It's actually a good thing. Use me. I'm here. Apply it. I can help. Selling, selling, selling. You've got to. And corporate people don't like it. They, they're nervous of selling because they did sales when they were younger. Don't want to do it again, probably. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's all that's those things apply. That's, that's yeah, that, that's absolutely what I uh, sort of am getting to, which is the fact that we have this traditional idea of experience and, and you sort of encountered that. Well, you didn't do 20 years. No, but I did, you know... 30 years of international work just because only five of that was with WHO or whatever does, you know, they're looking at one piece and they're missing the giant picture here. And I think that's really true for international careers, at least in my experience, because it's the same because a lot of these organizations do not want to be retirement organizations anymore, you know, and, and there are some that are European union, UN, you can do that. But a lot of the, the donor driven organizations or project-based organizations with finite timelines, you know, you're not expected to be permanent career individuals, right? And and NATO has gone into sort of, you could have a long-term career, but there are also contractual limitations, three years plus three years, you have to change jobs, you know, and, and again, like OSCE, 10 years and you're out, it doesn't matter, there is no retirement. So that, to me, I agree with you, it, it's not a negative, it's a diversity of experience, and they have to be able to view it from the perspective of being an international career professional, not just, you know, in this way of traditional experience. And I, that's very, and I'll just say this, that's very problematic, I don't know about anywhere else, but that's very problematic in the States as well, because States in the, in the U.S. is a very limited profile on what an international work is. Because when many people think about international work and doing things in foreign policy, it's always U.S. State Department, right, or U.S. aid or larger government organizations and not necessarily understanding the other thousand organizations that are out there doing different types of work. So I completely agree with that. And I, I, I really encourage people to take ownership of their career in that way. And if you want that experience, build that experience and take ownership of it and sort of create your identity around that. Because I think that's incredibly, incredibly important the, the further that you get into your career uh, in, in that way. But um, yeah, that's, it's been very helpful, very insightful conversation. We're just about out of time. We've run just over an hour. Um, any final thoughts for anybody that's sort of a, a young professional, maybe just finished their master's degree and, and is uh, you know trying to, to break into the field? What is maybe a couple of final points you might offer as small nuggets of advice? Go to the aidworkersunion.org and look up the bit that gives you general advice on how to get 
into the business and live as an international. Um, I, I wrote a book myself called um, Everything That Follows about how I survived while doing my job, and it sort of touches on all this stuff. It's not about my job. It's about how I survived while doing my job. I, I now need to write the book about my actual job. <laughs> but that will take a bit longer. So that it'd be a good place to start. It's always good to do your online research. Um, aidworkersunion.org is good. Work out as quickly as you can. Are you, are you an independent type or are you a corporate type? And the world is changing. It, 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 HR professionals are still lagging. So you're going to have to sell, but know what it is you're selling. You don't necessarily have to predefine it. But even with hindsight, you know, accentuate the positive, minimize the negative, and just sell it. Because people need you. If you're any good at all, people need you. I mentioned the, the operational field experience. I think that's really important. And I mentioned the qualification uh, because you, you, you have to keep re-qualifying. doesn't mean a master's degree every time, but it's not unusual to have two or three master's degrees now. And I guess the last one would probably be practical in as much not how to maintain a home life. I sort of touched on that briefly because that often comes up too. I said just work on that, you know, working work on your home network more than you would ordinarily. So so use WhatsApp if nothing else uh, and get on the phone and spend money getting on the phone well, Skyping or whatever. And get a good tax advisor. Because your tax situation is going to be complicated and you could end up doing the best job in the world and you end up absolutely penniless because you've been moving jobs, moving countries and, and, and the tax authorities, whenever you land at somewhere called home, don't understand and will take you for everything you've got. So be alive to your tax situation from the beginning. That is that is all. <laughs> the last point is very true. Uh, I, I think we all have our own accountants and things like that, and and so, but that that's for an entirely different podcast on the financial aspects. But it would it would be quite interesting because we've all sort of encountered these limitations and and you know and and stuff like that that we have to manage. So, but James, thank you so much for being here today and joining us on the podcast. It's really been great to have you. Um, and, and aside from the website you mentioned, is there any other way to get in touch with you if somebody wants to reach out to you? Should they find you on LinkedIn or what's your preferred method there? Uh, I think LinkedIn is probably the best nowadays. People absolutely feel free. I don't know if I've been any use to anybody, um, <laughs> but you can always uh, PM me on, on LinkedIn and I'll, I'll get back to you. All right. Great. Thank you so much, James. And it was really a pleasure. Thanks again. All right, Carl. Appreciate it. Bye.